I'm preaching this morning um, out of Psalm 50, and I'm preaching out of Psalm 50 uh, for two reasons. Both are related to the mission trip that a team from Redeemer is departing on later this week. The first reason I chose Psalm 50 to preach today is because the country of Rwanda, to which we are traveling, is referenced in this passage, at least sort of. Did anybody catch it when the scriptures were read a moment ago? If you didn't know it already, Rwanda is a beautiful and rugged country where mountainous hills blanket the landscape in every direction where you look, which has caused Rwanda to be affectionately known as the land of 1,000 hills. And in Psalm 50, verse 10, the Lord references an area where there are a thousand hills over which he claims authority and ownership of them all. And even though, as far as we know, the Lord's not technically referencing Rwanda here, the point that he makes in this psalm certainly applies to Rwanda's thousand hills also. And so this passage is a beautiful reminder to us that the place to which we are traveling this next week is under God's ownership. We will be his while we are there. The second reason that I chose Psalm 50 to preach today and in relation to this partnership trip is because uh, the very simple yet profound gospel message which is proclaimed in this psalm is the sole basis for our relationship with our sister church in Rwanda. This partnership was established and rooted in belief and hope in the gospel. As a very brief explanation for those who may not know the history of this partnership, our church was actually started as a Rwandan church. When there was a crisis of faith happening in the leadership of the Episcopal Church some 20 plus years ago, many of its leaders were leaving behind biblical faith and belief in the basic message of the gospel. And so the church in Rwanda stepped in and intervened to provide biblically faithful and orthodox leadership to worshipers who loved the Anglican tradition, but who were being led astray by the teachings of the Episcopal Church. And so after more than 100 years where missionaries had been traveling from America to Africa in order to proclaim the hope of the gospel, now Africa was having to send missionaries back to America in order to remind us of and to call us back to that original gospel message. And the Anglican mission in America was started. So before the Anglican Church of North America, of of which we are now a part, was formed and established, we were part of that missionary movement as a Rwandan church here in Raleigh. And one of the things that always blessed me about our Rwandan brothers and sisters is that whenever they came to visit here in the States, they always preached a very simple and clear and straightforward gospel message about the problem of our sin and the hope that we have in Jesus. They proclaimed to us the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And that's what we have in Psalm 50. And so for those two reasons, because Rwanda is alluded to and because the hope of the gospel is boldly proclaimed. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me to Psalm 50 as we consider the good news of the gospel from the land of 1000 hills. 
We often describe the message of the gospel as the good news of God, which it is. But did you know that the gospel message really begins not with good news about God, but with unfortunate news about us? Psalm 50 portrays that powerfully as it opens in verses 1 through 6 with a summons to judgment. We see at the opening of the psalm that the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks from heaven and summons the entire earth from the rising of the sun to its setting to gather before him for judgment. Later in the psalm, we see just how expansive this call to judgment is. As in verses 7 through 15, God addresses his own covenant people and he calls them to judgment. And then in verse 16 through 22, he addresses the wicked or or those who aren't his people and he calls them to judgment as well. These two groups encompass all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike. Both those who are God's people and those who are not. Those who have made a covenant with Him and those who have not. Those who seek to follow after Him and those who don't. Those who try to live a holy life and those who don't. You and me. In Psalm 50, everyone is summoned before God. And what we see throughout this passage is that there are different reasons for those summons. Again, in verses 7 through 15, God's people are summoned because of their religious activities. God says in in verse 8 that it's not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So, So it's not a summons due to their religious inactivity. If anything, it's due to their religious overactivity. He's saying that you are always doing religious activity. But in verse 9, he acknowledges that their religious activities were not pleasing to him. When he says that I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Though he had instructed them to make these offerings, there was something about them and the way that they were doing them that didn't please the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what that was. It it may have been that their religious activity had become meaningless to them. That that they did it so often that it became mindless and heartless. Or it may have been that their religious activity had ceased to become about relationship with God and had become about responsibility to God. To the point that their sacrifices had become duty and work rather than devotion and worship. Or it could have been that as they gave their offerings to the Lord, they believed that they were were earning some sort of favor or standing with God by their sacrifices. As if they were putting God into their debt through their religious activity so so that he would somehow owe them something rather than the other way around. Whatever the exact reason was, we can't know for sure, but God was displeased with their sacrifices and he was calling them to account Because of it, their worship was displeasing to the Lord and they were going to experience judgment as a result. That's why God's people were being judged. The wicked, on the other hand, weren't being judged for their religious acts, but for their irreligious ones. In verse 16 and following, the Lord gives a litany of reasons for which they are being summoned to judgment. He says that they hated his discipline. They disregarded his words. They were pleased with the thief. 
They kept company with adulterers. They spoke evil and they told lies and they slandered their own family. It's a summation of a life that is lived, turned against God and his ways. Their minds and their hearts and their words and their actions were all wicked. And though God had been silent about their evil up to this point, causing them to think that God was like them and that he agreed with them and that he approved of them, he now assures them that he most certainly is not like them and that he does not agree with them and he does not approve of them as he calls them to account in order to rebuke them and to judge them. So God's people are being judged for their religiosity and the wicked are being judged for their irreligiosity, which in the end leaves everybody facing the judgment of God. What we have in Psalm 50 is a reminder that absolutely everyone on the entire face of the earth will one day have to face the judgment of God. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. The problem is that when we're left to ourselves, our deeds are never good, but are only evil. For this is the effect of the fall of mankind and of sin in our lives. From the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and ate the fruit which he had expressly warned them not to eat. Ever since that time, our lives have been lived in opposition to God and to his ways. And we see the breadth and the depth of the effect of that sin throughout the rest of the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 6, God observed that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts were only evil all of the time. In Isaiah chapter 64, we're told that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. Even the good things that we try to do are tainted and polluted by selfish and impure motives. They don't please God. In the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul clearly summarizes all of this. How both the irreligious and the religious have turned their backs on God. To the point that in the end, the effect of sin in our lives is that there is none who are righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It's a devastating assessment of humanity. It's a devastating assessment of you and of me. This is the unfortunate news about us. That because of our sin, we deserve the judgment of God. And what we're told in verse 22 of Psalm 50 is that if something isn't done... If there isn't some intervention, then we will be destroyed by God's judgment and there will be none to deliver. This is why the writer of the Hebrews says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now listen, 
I know that no one likes to think about judgment. I don't like to talk about it. You don't like to hear about it. No one wants to believe that a loving God would actually bring devastating judgment on the earth or in our lives because we think God is like us and we wouldn't do something like that. We don't want something like that. But here, Psalm 50, the Lord warns us that he is not like us. He doesn't think about sin the way that we think about sin. He doesn't take it lightly the way we take it lightly. He's not like us. And here he tells us that he is going to judge the sin in this world and in our lives. And though we don't like to think about that, this psalm tells us that we must. In verse 6, at the end of God's summons for the earth to come to judgment... There is a word found there, Selah, which most scholars agree is a term that is used to cause people to pause and to think about what has just been said. It's a call to reflect upon the meaning of the verses that you have just read before you continue to read on. And so here in verses 1 through 6, God summons the earth to judgment. And then he tells us to stop for a moment and to really consider That reality. We're called to think about and to dwell upon the fact that we deserve the judgment of God. And so I want you to do that for a moment this morning. Think about the the reality that left to yourself, you deserve the judgment of God. Let the weight of your sin come to bear on your soul for just a moment. Consider and be honest about the harm that your sin has caused to you and to your neighbor and to God's good creation. Contemplate the predicament of your life before God because of the offense of your sin. This is the unfortunate news about us as humans. We live our lives standing before God, deserving of His judgment. And if we don't pay attention to that, as verse 6 implores us to, and as verse 22 warns us to, if we don't pay attention to that, then God's judgment will destroy us, and there will be none to deliver. So what hope do we then have? Well, this is where the grace of the gospel turns the unfortunate news about us into the good news about God. Because in the midst of our helpless state, when we stood guilty before God because of our sin, with no sacrifice left to offer, God intervened. And at the end of each word of judgment in this passage, the Lord shows us the hope that we have in Him. At the end of God's rebuke of his people for their endless sacrifices of bulls and goats. In verse 14 and 15, he says this. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And at the end of God's rebuke to those who were not his people, he said to them in verse 23... 
The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And when we put those two promises of hope together, what we see is that when we had no hope, there is a delivery and a salvation that comes from God. When we needed someone to intervene and we had none to do so, God himself intervened on our behalf. And all that we need to do in order to experience this delivery and to see this salvation is to trust in God with a thankful heart. God doesn't require us to live a perfect life because we can't. And he doesn't need us to offer to him perfect sacrifices because we can't. He simply wants us to trust in him and to be grateful to him. He simply wants us to cry out to Him, to call upon Him in the day of trouble. This is how we rightly order our life before Him. We acknowledge our need before Him and our dependence upon Him. We turn our eyes to Him and we look to Him for help. We stop trying to live our lives on our own apart from Him. And instead we live in dependence upon Him and trust in His care for our lives. And when we do that, His promise is that He will deliver us. That He will show us His salvation. And isn't this what God has done for us in Jesus? When we couldn't live the perfect life, God sent His Son to live the perfect life for us. When we couldn't offer a meaningful sacrifice, God provided a meaningful sacrifice for us. When we couldn't stand in the judgment that we deserved, God sent His Son to endure our judgment for us. When there was nothing that we could do in order to save ourselves, God Himself provided our salvation. All through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, who came to this earth to save us from our sin and to restore us in our relationship with God. All that we have to do to receive this great gift and to experience this great salvation is to trust in Him. It's as the psalm says, if we call on Him in the day of trouble and are thankful for His provision in our lives, we will experience the salvation of God. This is the good news of the gospel. That when we were dead in our sins and could not save ourselves, God in his love has provided salvation for us. Or as Tim Keller famously summarized, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared to hope. Or as the reformer Martin Luther quipped, The gospel will kill you, and then it will make you alive. The gospel contains bad news about us, but great news about our God. And it must always include both. We must keep this message intact. And the reason that we must remember both is because we will never appreciate our salvation. Unless we remember what we have been saved from. 
We will never rightly value Christ's sacrifice unless we know how much it cost. We'll never hate our sin unless we know how destructive it is. We'll never cherish our forgiveness unless we remember our deserved guilt. We'll never value our freedom that we have in Christ if we don't recall the captivity that we were enslaved to in sin. I could go on and on and on. My point is simply this. If we want to understand our salvation and the love that God has for us, we must keep the gospel message intact And complete. And all throughout our lives, we need to remember and to reapply these truths to our lives. Sometimes, when we are impenitent and hard of heart, we need to hear words of warning and correction. In those times, we need to be called back to repentance and to reformation of life so that we do not miss the grace that God offers to us. At other times when we are broken and contrite, we need to hear the love that God has shown to us in Christ and the provision that He has made for our weakness and for our brokenness and for our sin. Different situations require different applications of the gospel, but they must both be present for us to truly understand and appreciate the grace that God has shown to us. Church, this gospel message found in Psalm 50 and all throughout the scriptures, this is the message that God has given to us in His Word. It's the message that missionaries from America used to take to Africa. It's the message that missionaries from Africa are now bringing back to America. It's the message that will unite us together with our sister church in Rwanda when we travel there later this week. And it's the message that unites us with our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world and all throughout time. And so, remembering the unfortunate news about us and cherishing the good news Of our God. Let us order our ways rightly. Calling upon him. In our days of trouble. And giving thanks to him. With a sacrifice of our lives. In order that we might glorify God. And see his salvation. For his glory. And for our good. Amen.